Hello and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. On today's episode, I talk with my friend, Dr. Michael Toll, a professor in the Department of Political Science at Mount St. Mary's University. Dr. Toll has been teaching at Mount St. Mary's since 1991. He received his bachelor's degree from Georgetown University and his PhD from the University of Texas at Austin. He has held the rank of full professor since 2004. Dr. Toll teaches introductory and advanced courses in American politics, including parties and elections, the American presidency, congressional politics, and the Supreme Court and constitutional law. His primary scholarly focus is on American national politics, especially American political institutions. In this episode, Dr. Toll and I discuss the concept of executive power, the power assigned by our Constitution to the executive branch of government and given to it, or taken by it, over more than 200 years of muddling through the checks and balances instituted by our founders. At a time when the presidency seems to be growing ever more powerful, it's good to stop and consider the history and wonder about the future of executive power in the United States. This conversation was recorded on September 8th. All right, Dr. Toll. Hello. (laughs) It's so good to have you here. I'm so glad that you could join us today for the podcast. Well, this will be fun. It's good to talk to you. Good. So today we're going to be talking about the concept of executive power in uh, American politics. And I'd love if you could start us off by just saying, what does the, by telling us what the Constitution says about the separation of powers, and in particular, the powers of the executive? Well, actually, on the powers of the executive, the thing that's real interesting is uh, the high degree of vagueness of it. Um, So Article 2 begins with, uh, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. And although there are later some specific powers listed, it's never been clear whether that granting of executive power involves all possible executive powers. Uh, um, Many, if not most presidents of the last hundred years, at least, or since 1900, um, have sort of said, well, this grants me all executive power that it doesn't prohibit to me. Um, others who have been a little stricter, uh, I don't, William Howard Taft comes to mind, um, believe that Article 2 deliberately um, specified powers, it uh, uh, delegated specific powers. But, but the Constitution is a little vague as to what it means by the executive power. Um, and honestly, that was probably simply the founding fathers probably didn't want to try to figure that out. Um, on the on the issue of the separation of powers, there's a lot of powers that are given to both Congress and the president. And and when you're talking about the the presidency, a lot of times the issue is to, to what extent can they act unilaterally? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So could you say a little bit about how the separation of powers um, and executive power have evolved over time? Ah, yeah. So. Throughout U.S. history, there have been different point, different. Uh, it's almost like there's been a pendulum swing um, between the power of the presidency and the power of Congress in terms of the separation of powers. Um, many times there's been a balance, uh, but but sometimes uh, presidents have been very deferential to Congress, either willingly or because they had no choice, like in the eighteen, the late eighteen hundreds. Um, but there have been other times in history, say during the Civil War, where clearly the balance of power was more with the president, mm-hmm. and also during uh, war times and other emergencies. Um, in 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 the mid twentieth century, um, there was this. Uh, a lot of people were concerned about the growth of power to the presidency. After World War II, presidents remained extremely powerful in regard to foreign policy and even domestic policy. But by the time uh, of the Nixon presidency, 
there was a, after Lyndon Johnson and and uh, and some unilateral actions in Vietnam, there were a lot of people describing what they said was an imperial presidency. And after Nixon's resignation um, and near near impeachment and removal, uh, and Congress took a number of actions to 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 limit congressional power. But it, it would seem that the American Republic is just too centered around a presidency. I mean, we have a very large administrative state and powers slowly accrued back to the, the presidency. And, and that really just uh, continued um, slowly. I think by, by 9-11 um, with President Bush, there were, there were so many emergencies um, and Congress took a number of actions that really strengthened what the federal government can do you think the Patriot Act, for example, that that did many things that probably needed to be done from a security standpoint, but it also um, it also made a lot of uh, civil libertarians nervous at the degree mm-hmm. to which the the government could should watch over things. Right. Um, uh, so the last two presidents, if we think President Obama and well, really Bush, the last three, Bush, Obama, and Trump. What we've really seen is an extraordinary growth in the use of um, executive orders, for example, sometimes fairly sweeping executive orders. And, and that seems to have been a reaction to two things. One, sort of concerns about terrorism. And the other thing is extreme partisanship. And the extreme partisanship resulted in presidents getting very frustrated, uh, being unable to do anything working with Congress. So they simply decided to act unilaterally. Right. I think I noticed too, and I don't know how long this has been going on because I've only really been paying attention for the past three administrations, but I think a lot of times um, the leadership in Congress, they don't want their members to take, they don't want their members to have to take a hard vote. So they don't put a lot of things up for vote. I mean, that was definitely the case with um, the, uh, war powers, I guess you'd say, in the Middle East after 9-11. You know, I mean, they, they did take an initial vote, but since then they haven't really wanted to update it because they don't want their members to have to take a vote on that kind of an issue because they know it's going to make them vulnerable to challenge. And and when you ha- when you get enough of these big issues that Congress won't touch because they're afraid of the electoral repercussions, then you get presidents who say, well, we've got to do something. <laughs> I think that's part of it. And, and the other thing is that um, it, it's, it's, it's worse with the Republicans, but the Democrats are catching up. The, the partisans are so much more partisan that any compromise has become seen as, you know, a, a dirty word, um, you know, consorting with the enemy or, or something. And uh, that's made it hard. I, you know, I'm willing to bet if we grabbed you know, 10 reasonable people, we could come up with a better tax code, a better immigration plan, um, you know, a solution to social security funding, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so many things. These are not really difficult problems on paper to find a middle ground on. Um, But compromising is now seen, you know, it's, it's an all or nothing game. Mm-hmm. And members of Congress have been successfully primaried in their own parties um, by people who thought they weren't, you know, for, you know, out on the extreme enough. Right. Yeah. Compromise hasn't even simply been seen as weak. It's been seen as like a betrayal to your side. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's very odd. Um, and I think that that's what's uh, ignited some of this unilateral action. You know, for, uh, you know, you think of, of DACA, for example, and immigration. Um, President Obama had things he wanted to do on immigration, um, but there, it, it seemed like any sort of deal went against uh, like an orthodoxy. Uh, and, and again, I, I will blame Republicans mm-hmm. a little more um, uh, it, it, during the Obama era, certainly. And as I said, I'm not, I'm not going to exonerate Democrats, but you know, that it's where really that, that notion of a rhino first came up, Republican right. in name only. Mm-hmm. And then they, they successfully uh, 
you know, primary, um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking in Virginia, I'm drawing a, a blank. He was the, uh, uh yeah, the majority can, leader can, of the Republican. Picture him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was a, uh, you know, a shot across the bow mm-hmm. to a lot of people. And, and that's a tough environment. It, it, our entire government is actually structured for compromise. And if the parties prevent it, um, then, then you know, unilateral action might become the only way to solve a problem, at least in the mind of a president. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when DACA happened, I remember feeling so conflicted because I supported the goal of DACA. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... And of course, I wished that Congress would take up the subject itself, um, but I was very fearful about what sort of a precedent it would set for Obama to do it without Congress. Um, yeah, I, it, it was it was concerning, and it, it's interesting. By the way, it was Eric Cantor was the name we could. There you think go. I, you know, I thought it was I thought it was Eric, and then I thought, no, it can't be Eric. <laughs> uh, um, you know, DACA DACA was was. It, is an example of an interesting problem um, because it, it brings it, I mean, that's a great example. Um, um, I, I agree with you. It did seem to me, and I, and I, I know reasonable people, I guess, can disagree on this, but um, I'm sort of with you on it, that it, it does seem to me that penalizing people who were brought here as children who had no say in the matter, um, who are living in the shadows and, you know, I, I don't like the idea of having young people who are going to live here without education because they have to, ha- you know, I, so I favored, you know, most of the actions there. And what, what it, what's interesting is then the, the constitutional question, when you get back to what you were asking me about originally with, with separation of powers, I, I'm not certain that what President Obama did was unconstitutional. But it was, it sure was breathtakingly, uh, it was a breathtaking sweep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a notion of prosecutorial uh, discretion, uh, you know, a, a president or actually a, a prosecutor, and in this case, answering to the president, they don't have to choose to prosecute every known crime. Um, and that's really what that, what was going on there is in essence, President Obama said, we're not, we're just not going to use the Justice Department to pursue these cases right now. Well, that part of it, I understand a little better, but it also, they also um, allowed work permits and such. Yes, they did. I mean, again, I agree with that policy goal. Um, I wish it had been, I wish it had come into effect via Congress. (laughs) Right. No. And I think that's just it. I mean, I think, I think it pushed it certainly violated some norms and it probably took some actions that were constitutional and then pushed the outer limits of it. Um, work permits. Um, there are a few other, uh, it, it, well, it exempted their parents, which I guess would also be prosecutorial uh, discretion. Um, I, I wish we had a situation as well where Congress could have worked on this. Um, and, and, you know, part of it is also the other thing that, that Congress is not usually willing to do is to break up uh, bills into many little parts. And often presidents right. don't want to either because mm-hmm. they, they want they want to sort of stick each side with take the whole. Um, right. Well, this is a concept I remember well from when I was a lobbyist, you know, oh, right, it's, yeah. um, it's it's always easier to pass something more narrow. But on the other hand, when you do something broader, you can you can accomplish um, more than you would otherwise specifically, because if you have, say, five measures and one of them is less popular, it, it's only chance might to be part of might be to be part of that broader bill. Exactly right. Um, and 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 not only that, um, well, yes. Well, no, exactly that. But if if you imagine if you imagine things happening in the wrong order, um, you you run the risk of losing people politically with if you individually address each of the five. Right. Um, right. Right. And so there's the it's an omnibus bill is what it's usually called where you put everything into it. Yeah. I mean um, that kind of thing is 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 in the best 
case scenario, a vehicle for compromise. It's a, a way to bring more people on board too. Right, right. Um, but if you if you have a hard line, if we're in an era of I think ideology more than pragmatism, mm-hmm. and if if you are persuaded by ideology that I cannot, uh, you know, allowing them to live here is um, amnesty. And I I cannot let go of that. Then it's hard to it's hard to see how we then resolve anything else. Um, right. You know, it, it, yeah. I, I I think that the I don't want to get your listeners all upset, but what the heck? I mean, I think that the notion <laughs> of of a wall is a ridiculously silly way to deal with border security. Mm-hmm. But it it sure seems to me that reasonable people could come up with a compromise that includes very strong border security, you know, walls, fences, electronic, like there's, there's a combination of things we can do, Absolutely. you know, in exchange for paths to citizenship, or at least paths to work permit. Like there's, there's things that could have happened uh, as steps along the way, but simply no one, no one will do, no one will work on it. Right. I think, unfortunately, um, voters respond best to policies that can that can be like a quick soundbite. <laughs> yeah, sure. And that doesn't make for the best policymaking. It may make for the best politicking, but it doesn't make for the best policymaking. And yeah, I just felt like with the wall, it was like a sort of a medieval solution to a 21st century problem. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I I thought, you know, you could make border security a priority, but you should you should try to do it well and for you need, you know, you should try to be fiscally responsible with it. You should try to be humane with it. I mean, you you sh- you could have a number of goals within the concept of border security, and you could do a decent job. But instead, um, the Republican Party chose this this soundbite, and it's it's frustrating to me. But that's you know I've talked on this podcast before about my own perspective, so we can leave that aside. <laughs> well, but I but uh, but let's let's stick with it though, if it, if it's okay for just a because it, it it's yeah. interesting though the next reaction to that in a hyper partisan era. Um, so when 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 Donald Trump started to build the wall, um, Nancy Pelosi's response was to say that walls are immoral. Um, which is also a sound bite and kind of mm-hmm. silly. You know, mm-hmm. it depends. Mm-hmm. Well, where mm-hmm. are you putting it? How, you know, I, I think a 1400 mile one or whatever is ridiculous, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not enough of an expert. I'm sure there are miles of some area where the job would be easier if there was some sort of high barrier. Sure. Um, yeah. and, but notice how it one side takes a sort of absurd position and then the other side feels the need to then denounce it all. And then I think we're actually right. further mm-hmm. apart on border security. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, speaking of border security, this ties into our conce- our um, conversation on executive power. One of the most um, stunning things that I've noticed about the Trump administration has been the diversion of um, military funds. Mm. border wall mm-hmm. and um there have just been a number of a number of points in the trump presidency where i thought wow this is really an extension of e- executive power he's um really trying to push this point here and i wonder how much people are noticing that this is n- new and unusual or at least to to this degree being new and unusual yeah and i, I i'm not enough of a uh, i'm not a constitutional lawyer and i i I, it certainly, it certainly is concerning that the border wall is being seen as a security threat and therefore we're going to reappropriate money that Congress has designated, you know, specifically for, for the military uh, purposes. And, you know, by the way, it's a political risk because if we find Mm -hmm. ourselves in some sort of foreign crisis and discovered that something wasn't done that Congress thought was going to be done because it was building a wall. Right. Um, it's, it's bad politics, I think in the long run, but yes, mm-hmm. that, and by, you know, back with Richard Nixon, which I referred to earlier, Nixon had a practice called impounding where he, Congress would 
appropriate funds. And Nixon would just simply say, well, I'm not going to spend it. And Congress reacted in 1973, I think, over over Nixon's objection, over his veto, with the budget, um, well, the impoundment act that prevented uh, presidents from being able to do this, except in the most extreme circumstances. Hmm. Um, and I think um, we see this here again in exactly the situation you just talked about, President Trump, re, uh, you know, diverting, in this case, not impounding it, but diverting it away from congressional intent. Um, and, and I know you want to talk about executive power, but I think to some hmm. extent it's it's hard to do it without also acknowledging that Congress seems to have um, been unwilling to enforce their own uh, their own place in the government. I mean, there used right, to be, yeah. you know, institutional loyalty. Um, you know, you were a member of Congress, you were a member of the House um, or the Senate. There was institutional loyalty. The House and the Senate sort of against each other, but both of them against the presidency to some extent. Right. Um, members of Congress now see themselves, and, and we're not a parliamentary system, and this shouldn't work, but they see themselves either as partisans who are part of, are, are the president's lieutenants, if they're of his or her party, or, you know, somehow the, the opposition. Um, and that really undermines Congress's being able to do their job um, as an independent branch. Um, and that, I think, in the long run, just builds up uh, e executive power. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't exactly have executive overreach unless you have the corresponding legislative, I don't know, backing off. I don't know how you'd term it, but right. it's um, the other flip sides. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, they should be. And so many of them will say that they're constitutionalists, et cetera, and yet they remain silent if they like the policy outcome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, boy, that the, the danger, of course, is then when it's not when it's not your party in charge, um, you know, that becomes a precedent that the other side will do. Right. Right. Yeah. You mentioned it, but the, the loyalty to the institution first and the party right. second. I that's an, another thing that I've at this moment almost forgotten, <laughs> but certainly at the beginning of the Trump presidency was very fresh in my mind. And I just kept thinking, um, but they're supposed to care about the Senate. They're supposed to care about the House. They're supposed to care about Congress. And it was sort of unsettling to me that a lot of that was set aside in deference to the president, because I think it's important that we have a balance of powers. You know, it's important that we have a Congress and executive that balance each other out. And when one side gives up its power, then you no longer really have that balance. Yeah, no, I, yes, I'm, I'm very alarmed by it. Um, I would have thought, well, I have a theory here too. And Okay. Cut me off if you. But I would <laughs> no. have thought that the that the Democrats taking over the House would have helped that a little, and and it did help that a little. Um, but a curious thing happened. I think. Um, I think. I think. Back to Nancy Pelosi. I think her mm -hmm. original instincts were correct that, that they were not ready to impeach the president when they did. Um, you know, I, I I think what they impeached him on, they were probably right, but there wasn't going to be a chance of removal. And once he was acquitted in the Senate, I feel like he has sort of a carte blanche at the moment. Uh, you know, the, the Senate, in mm -hmm. essence, said we're we're going to let we're going to look the other way. You know, we're going we're going to let this go. And you know, since then, you know, his willingness to use the pardon power, um, his willingness to to do a lot of different things expanded because the the there is no more threat of an impeachment. They they shot right. it already. Um, right. So. Yeah. No, I think that um, I think probably the most politically advantageous thing the Democrats could have done was to not impeach. I think it ultimately went to Trump's advantage. But I think as far as the institution and sort of the legacy of this balance of the powers issue, I think they had to. They had to do it. So, but I, I sort of think that if they were going to do it, they should have done a really thorough job of it. 
And it seemed to me that they felt like they had to do it and they wanted to get it over with as quickly as possible and make it as narrow as possible. And I sort of feel like if, if you were going to go down that route, you needed to do a good, thorough job of it. So well, you, you probably yeah. needed to line up the senators who were going to support you first. Right. You know, good politics mm-hmm. is all right. Yeah. You know, if to talk to people, you know, the, this is the other thing that doesn't happen in Washington anymore. But the, mm-hmm. the private cross aisle conversations mm-hmm. have stopped. And there's many reasons for that. Yeah. Um, but, I, I, I figure that they just thought there was no way they were going to get the Senate. At least I think there was no way they were going to get the Senate. Probably right. And, you know, um, did they make their case? Yes, but the but the Senate wasn't really going to be willing to hear it, and so what does it mm-hmm. look like? It looks like they didn't really make their case. Mm-hmm. Um, so I yeah, I think they I don't think they were read, ready. Um, and that was the instinct of the Democratic leadership early on, and it was it was actually the hyper partisans who were really saying no, we have to do you know or who pushed it, who uh, mm-hmm. pushed the leadership into a corner on that. And this is this is why the hyper partisans make me nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they want to be right and that's all great, but there's also something to be said for being pragmatic. Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that's why I said, I think politically the most advantageous thing for the Democrats would have been not to do it at all. Yeah. I think so too. I think, yeah, I think Pelosi's instinct on that was right. But as, like I said, as someone who cares about the sort of the long-term situation of the institution, I think you couldn't take what was happening in the presidency and not establish some mark saying we think this is wrong, you know? So I don't know. I think if, if they hadn't impeached at all, it would have been, it would have said like, open up these gates. You do whatever you want. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know. So I understand why they wanted to, to try, but I never thought it was going to actually um, result in his removal. I don't know. Um, what about, so we keep sort of alluding to the Trump administration. How would you characterize President Trump's take on executive power and what he's trying to achieve, and especially through executive orders and also in relationship to Congress regarding impeachment, but also testimony, mm. that kind of thing? Sure. I mean, it's... it. it, it if I understood Donald Trump, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, he's hard to understand. And I, I, I think it part of it is truly, I don't think he has a, um, a well-developed sense of government or a, a guiding political philosophy. Um, mm-hmm. And so as, as a result of that, it's, it's hard to, to know what he's thinking, but he does certainly, uh, give voice to a very expanded view of, of executive power. Um, you know, often saying, well, I'll just do things through executive order uh, is sometimes even with uh, some confusion as to what is state and what is federal. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just said something recently that he, oh, uh, well, uh, you know, that he, like, for example, uh, in the past, I don't know, month or so, he made some sort of suggestion that he was going to, you know, order schools to open right. in person. Right, right, right. Um, you know, the notion that a Republican would say such a thing, you know, is, is probably something else that relates to all this, but uh, uh, it ha- ha- being that they've always traditionally been very emphatic about local control, particularly of st- schools. Right, um, right. Uh, and he seemed to think he could do that through executive order. Um, and, you know, he did accomplish several goals with executive orders, but they often then end up seeing, seeming to be back in court. You know, he began his presidency with executive order, you know, the so-called Muslim ban. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had to do it three different ways before it passed constitutional muster. But he eventually did it. Um, you know, there, there's a list of countries that where there are certain um, types of restrictions on on. Uh, coming into the United States. Um, uh, so I, uh, I'm trying to think of some, he has done a number of other things. And even if not technically via executive order, he's done it through his appointment power by basically telling uh, different offices of what they're going to do. We've seen some things with the CDC. Um, 
uh, in terms of the coronavirus um, we've seen. Uh, right. Well, even recently, apparently the CDC put out some sort of order that people across the country could not be evicted. Oh, right. From, Thank you. Yes. From rental properties. I right. Thought, wow. I've never heard of an eviction directive coming from the federal government. Right. And I'll tell you that. And here's, here's an interesting example, because that one, in my understanding, relates to a federal law that is on the books. Um, But it's, but here's an, and I, you know, if I, if I get a chance while we're talking, I'll even try to look it up. I think it relates to a law on the books, but it, it, it does certainly seem that it was not used in the context that it's generally understood. That is to say, I think, I think there are laws that allow presidents to take certain actions under certain cir- emergency circumstances. Um, but, but the timing of it, of course, is so political in, a, in an election year, um, and it and and sort of an unwise policy. Like it, it sort of said, "Well, you we can't have evictions." Um, due to coronavirus. But of course, it made no provision for, well, then what? There's no discussion of, well, how do the landlords, the small-time landlords pay their mortgages or what have mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, that's, and I, and many times these cases actually are permitted under some interpretations of the law. And I'll, you can fact check me on this. I think that might have been one of them. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, there's there's certainly a violation of norms. You know, we're not we're not in a war, um, and it also seems like something that should have been worked out with Congress on an attempt for you know another another relief bill. Um, and it, um, oh, you know what else fits into that category is the president sort of had a unilateral uh, use of extension of employment benefits where the states would put in a quarter. Some of that is with tech, within technical allowance of the law, but I and I already I can tell where you're coming from, but I think I, you would you and I would both agree it would be much better for members of Congress to sit down and and try to come up with a plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, including how you're going to pay for it, which we, we right. we've thrown out the window, but that's probably for another another conversation. But um, so yeah, it, it, there. It, and a lot of this is often norms. Like, yes, there are extreme actions, but is there another way that I can take that doesn't require me using this extreme actions? And often the extreme actions end up being rather weak because mm-hmm. they are very restricted in what they could do. Whereas, um, you know, an eviction order that actually came out of Congress might have actually been better put together and might have actually been better for the people who are who really need it. Um, and who are in some harm's way. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, I used to work on some ho- housing policy issues on the state level. And, um, you know, of course, the federal government provides housing vouchers. Um, but I don't remember much sort of federal connection to the topic of eviction. Like, I don't, I just don't, I, you know, that was 10 years ago. But I just I don't remember federal government money that went to much eviction assistance or any of I, mean, I just think if if there were a way that the government could have helped that probably would be it would be to say okay well let's provide some eviction assistance to people who are you know demonstrating um pandemic related income loss or something I don't know All right so I did a a, a quick fact check here and it does appear that the White House is saying that this is allowed under laws on, um, uh, uh, that apply to disease control. But the, the strange thing is it doesn't actually cancel the amount of money that um, a, a, a renter in trouble uh, would have to pay. It just defers it. So again, not having Congress involved, you know, not using the separation of powers and the compromise, I think is actually going to leave some people worse off. Because sure, they'll be evicted, yeah. you know, they'll be evicted in January in the middle of winter, and they'll just owe more money, right? Um, you know, so uh, I I don't have a great answer. I'm not you know about how to cover landlords and renters and yeah. you know help people who are struggling. It, it doesn't 
doesn't actually help the situation so much as kick can down kick the can down the road a little bit. Right. And you know what's a little distressing too is it kicks it past the election. Now presidents often right. do this, but right. you know, again, in terms of some violations of norms, there there have been certainly violations of norms that, that make this make this tricky and set us up maybe for more problems with future presidents. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think um I I feel like in the past presidents have been a little coy when it comes to the election, you know, on the calendar. They they didn't want to be they didn't want the appearance that they were um kicking the can down the road because of the election or that kind of thing. I don't know if I'm wrong, but that's been sort of my impression is that no one would want to be seen as doing that. And so they would try (laughs) to avoid the appearance as much as possible, even if it's really what they hoped. Um, And that's, I feel like it's all been laid bare now. And, and um, so it's just sort of is what it is these days, I think. Well, you know, I'm surprised. Well, you probably have a whole line of questions, but but, but I, I would say, if you want to get to norms of the presidency and, and unilateral executive power, I hope before we finish our conversation, we can also talk about the use of the pardon power too. Oh, that's 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 great. That would that would be helpful. Yeah, I I, I actually I don't I don't have any additional questions on that line of of thinking. I was going to ask you um, how to bring in the third branch of government, how the Supreme Court has been playing a little bit in this. You, you referenced earlier that um, like the Muslim ban went several times before the court and other plenty of other things have too. And I was just going to ask for your thoughts on how the third branch of government is interacting with the other two on this balance of powers question. Well, you know, it's interesting because that does seem to be a branch that is, at least the chief justice, is clearly worried about his institutional reputation Right. In ways that that I, I you know I said before, Congress seems to have abandoned. Um, it's speculated, although we don't really know this for certain, that that John Roberts has made some decisions that might be more um, accommodating to liberals than his legal instincts uh, would allow. I, I I don't think he would. Mm-hmm. I don't think he would be totally. I don't think he would go outside of what he thinks is actually constitutional. It just doesn't seem like his approach. Mm -hmm. But it is very clear that he is worried about the Supreme Court having a reputation for being, you know, Republican or Democrat. And and he's right. You know, people now see that as just another partisan branch. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that's that's troubling. Um, And so they they have been there in the background. you know, holding, holding Trump, I think, I, I think Donald Trump can't take the Supreme Court for granted. Um, right. And so if he makes some actions that, that go a little too far out, um, I think they will probably hold, hold the line. Um, if for no other reason, although I, I, I do think it would be their instinct to not want any part of the government to be too powerful, but I also think they will do it for their own reputation as a court. Right. Yeah, I, they do seem to me to be the only branch right now that's concerned with the reputation of the institution. Uh, yes. Um, and, you know, thinking what comes next. And, you know, if right. if they lose the the one reason they have sort of a, any sort of moral authority uh, it, when it comes to decisions is there has generally been in the United States an acceptance of I don't like that decision, but, you know, that they're the court and we're going to have to live by it. And if we want to change it, well, you know, we'll, we'll work around it by other means, but, but the law is the law. Right. Right. I was listening to a discussion of that sort of that concept the other day regarding the, um, the Bush versus Gore mm-hmm. situation. Um, and I guess in 2000, was that 2000? It was, yeah. And, um, and saying, you know, how, at the end of the day, Gore sort of sent out a signal. The, the answer is in. We may not like it, but we have to accept it and we've got to move on. And how that sort of willingness to accept a decision you don't like just seems so strange today. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, well, you know, and there's, and this was, you know, um, uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower privately um, had 
almost embarrassing views about about some racial issues. I say embarrassingly because he's you know was a great American, but he he allegedly mm-hmm. made some comments um, that you know that would be shocking if they're true, and I have no reason to think mm-hmm. they aren't. And mm-hmm. we know that privately he did not believe in the integration of the schools, but he also you know he sent uh, he sent troops to enforce it, you know to to Little Rock. Mm. Um, the National Guard, when 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 states tried to defy the Supreme Court on the immigration orders, um, that's on the on the segregation orders, right? Yes, uh, I'm sorry. Did, what did I say? You said immigration. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. you know what? Yeah. Now that I think about it, you might have said integration. Oh, Maybe okay. Oh, all right. Yeah. No, no. I, I believe me. I'm quite. I'm quite capable of of mixing all my words up. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So no. Um, yeah. The uh, uh, he did. You know, enforce it. And that really has been, you know, Richard Nixon, who was often seen as a a president who had a lot of corruptions, you know, he did not go out in onto the lawn of the White House with, you know, a a bucket of kerosene and burn the tapes. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, he turned them over because the Supreme Court and and he turned them over even though they were the end of his presidency. Yeah. Um, I. Yeah, I've I've thought of I thought I've thought of that a lot recently. I I don't think that would happen today. I don't think it would happen today. No, uh, and that's that's a breakdown of the rule of law. Yeah, I I keep thinking about norms, norms, norms. Mm-hmm. Like so much of when I'm processing the news in the past few years, so much of what really gets me is norms, and I just think it's something that probably most people don't think much about. It's just sort of an obscure word, but to me, it's the norms that sort of it's like. Um, it's our political system acting with, with prudence or with um, being careful with itself. You know, it's, 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 it's how we sort of treat the things that matter to us gently so that we don't destroy them. <laughs> I, I think that's a, I, I want to write that down. I mean, I think that's, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And I, I'm afraid now that um, my feelings about the, the current president are so clear that you have no listeners left. <laughs> but, you know, our, our norms associated with the presidency and the election, um, you know, President uh, uh, Trump just yesterday, I think it was, I think he said of his opponent about Joseph Biden, he is a very stupid person, mm. you know, in a speech. You know, we, you know, <laughs> you know, the, the notion of my worthy opponent Right. right. I mean, you know, right. it was always clear that they went after each other pretty hard, but you kind of went after their ideas. Uh, and, and and many, many uh, candidates over the years didn't really have any personal dic- dislike over each other. I mean, they mm-hmm. may have ruffled each other's feathers, but this is a, a new norm. And the norm of, of saying that an election is not going to be fair before it's even happened. Um, that one concerns me. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I wish... Um for any of my friends who are Trump supporters who are still listening, um, what I what I wish Trump supporters would understand is that it is it is right and good that people disagree on policy issues. Like yes, I I may forward. yeah right I I may disagree with the wall idea, but it is it is a policy idea and it is something that people of goodwill can differ on. And it, um, and it reminds the rest of us that we have to pay attention to border security. Sure. Yeah. Right? So it's and, good. Right. 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 And there are any number of policy issues that come from the Trump administration that we can in perfectly goodwill um, disagree on. Um, my problem is the undermining of the system that ties us all together. I just don't think we're treating our political system carefully enough. We're taking it for granted. And when we take something like this for granted, we can really get in trouble. <laughs> and I, I wish that's what people would take away and say, uh, I don't know, we, we need to treat this precious system that we have more carefully so that we don't destroy it. Yeah, it's, it, 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 it really requires very careful balance. Mm-hmm. Right. So on that cheerful note, <laughs> do you have any gut reactions, gut thoughts on, on what direction we're heading in and what it would take to reset our, our, uh, our balance into one that is more balanced and less lopsided onto, like, onto the executive? 
You know, I guess I guess it depends on you know the next election. Um, if President mm-hmm. Trump is reelected, then I I think certain things are are permanent changes. Uh, you know, and it's probably not one we even talked about, or not one that people think of. Uh, but it has come up other times in our history that you know the the fact that the president would have something called a rally, and that's mm-hmm. not seen as unusual. I mean, there there was a time right. in U.S. politics where presidents were not even supposed to publicly discuss you know bills or like this was this was actually um, one of the impeachment articles that got against Andrew Johnson in the in the eighteen sixties was was his intemperate speech. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, it was only later where presidents even were expected to speak about their policies openly while campaigning. So, yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the articles of impeachment against Andrew Johnson was, was intemperate speech. I mean, he was, uh, it was the way he was going around talking about the Congress. And, and mm-hmm. the norm then was you just didn't do that. Now mm-hmm. norms change, and that's fine. And and you know, by the end of the century, we were expecting presidents to campaign and talk, etc. But but now being in a system where presidents uh, or this president, um, I it, one thing that I want to see is if he is reelected, will we continue to have presidents use a rally uh, where you go out and you actually charge people up uh, about the person you defeated in the last election and because I think if we go in that direction, then I think that a lot of these changes then become permanent. Like if we do this for eight years, this becomes something that, you know, younger people will have grown up with and it's going to start to seem normal. Um, so that does seem like, a, a, it, like to answer your question, I think it might depend a little bit on, on, on the next election. However, I don't know let's suppose uh, uh, Joe Biden is elected. What happens there? Does he continue, you know, now that the, now that that has been acceptable, does he start to do that as a way to sort of charge up supporters in the country? Uh, I'm, I'm really not sure. Um, uh, So, you know, that, that's, and, and I also think that breaking down of norms begins, begins, begets rather the breaking down of norms. So as the Senate slowly has dissolved the use of the filibuster, um, which was often a norm to force the two sides to speak to each other, then I wonder what happens. Um, you know, do we, do we just decide all of the branches are now just going to be overly, overtly partisan and whoever wins goes for all and when we have divided government, nothing happens? Not sure. I know after President Trump was elected, I thought it was interesting that he started his campaign again right away and started having rallies, you know, a few years out from the current, the 2020 election. Uh, Yeah. Not only did he have rallies, I don't even know that they were about the next election. They were about the previous election. They were talking about Hillary Clinton and, um, you know, what happened. No, that's true. But I think they did announce the beginning of the next election. It was like January or February of 2017. Oh, oh wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's certainly a violation of norms. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, the, the notion that a president is going to go out and, and rally people in such a fashion, by the way, it, it's also, you know, Congress has often resented having presidents go over their head. Like you, you talk right. to us, you don't, yes. you don't rally the public to push. You don't go straight to the people. Yeah. Right. No, that's been a longstanding norm. Sure. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan was that very, seems, very good. That idea seems so quaint now, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And that's, you know, that's just a, and I think whatever happens next, that will be very telling to me, whatever mm-hmm. our next president does. If is that become going to become a new standard? And if it does, I think we're going to have to really readjust our our expectations for how our political system will work. Right. Yeah. I think if Biden is elected, I, I mean, I think partisanship is going to continue to be a major problem, regardless of who wins the election. I do. Too. Um, I do think 
there will be some restoration to the idea of norms if Biden is elected. Um, yeah, I think if Trump is reelected, then the idea of norms just gets thrown out the window. So I don't know. I I kind of I can't see very far down the road other than those sort of blunt <laughs> predictions. Yeah, I can't either. And and I do think there will be an element in the Democratic Party that will try to push uh, Biden to. No, you're right. The norms. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It will be interesting if he's elected to see how he responds to that, because that might um, really set our course for the future. I agree. You had mentioned earlier, and I didn't want to skip over it, um, the topic of pardons. Oh, right. Now, that's, a, that's another use of executive power um, in ways that's a little bit unprecedented, not, not using the, the, the pardon so much, but using the pardon um, to, in essence, so blatantly protect uh, your own political allies uh, you, you know, in some ways, almost seeming, it certainly leaves open the appearance that you're doing it in the hopes that you can prevent them from talking, mm-hmm. um, you know, with Roger Stone, for example, uh, or, or others, you know, is this a message, say, to Michael Flynn, you know, don't worry, I've got your back. And, and presidents would have in the past been worried about the appearance of impropriety. Now, to be right. sure, they often, like Bill Clinton Right. Uh, you know, did some. Right, I remember uh, that. Right. Yeah. But at least it was, you know, on the way out, not while, you know, it, as as maybe, un, you know, uncomfortable as it was or slimy as it was. It wasn't while his presidency was going on as a way to sort of protect him. Right. For those um, who don't remember, he, he <laughs> issued some pardons um, after the election, right before he left office that um, favored people that he was close to. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, one was a, a woman by the name of Susan McDougal. Uh, uh, no, wait a minute. I think you're, I think you're right with McDougal, but I could be wrong. <laughs> was it, was it, yeah. Okay. I think it was, uh, and, uh, the, you know, it, it, it did look peculiar. Um, but at least in terms of norms, uh, in, in fact, it looked bad to be blunt, mm-hmm. but at least in mm-hmm. terms of norms, it wasn't like that was to interfere with current, um, court processes Mm -hmm. because it wasn't like that was a message to other people. If you protect me, I'll pardon you too. Right. Um, uh, And if anything, um, uh, Obama, uh, certainly president Bush was criticized and to some extent, so was Obama for underuse of the pardon. And, you know, I, I, Mm -hmm. to give credit where credit is due, uh, I'm glad in some ways that president Trump has brought back the pardon power uh, because that there were many cases where, a president seemed hesitant to use it in cases where maybe they really should have. You know, we've mm-hmm. we've been very tough on crime in this country for all sorts of good reasons, but sometimes we need to pardon as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but he then extended it to all sorts of people who, you know, really were convicted, uh, did not serve sentences, had strong evidence against them, and in almost all the cases, you know, in many of the cases, it's been, uh, you know, uh, uh, campaign finance or um, uh, things connected to his campaign. And uh, that that's certainly a violation of norms. Right. It's kind of related to that. One thing that has really jumped out to me um, are the inspectors general. So, for, <laughs> Oh boy. Oh yeah. For those who don't know, um, federal agencies all have this inspector general that is meant to be an internal watchdog to make to, to root out fraud, waste, and abuse within federal agencies. And I used to work for an inspector general office. And oh, I didn't, I don't, I think I had forgotten that. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, that's one of those things that I think as a citizen, as a, as a taxpayer, you should want strong inspectors general. <laughs> like it, right, it, it's in the interest of the taxpayer and the citizen that there's someone in these agencies, um, rooting out corruption. And, um, President Trump has fired a couple of the inspectors general and right, that, for to blatantly me, partisan reasons, for, for right. political reasons. Yeah. And those are things that a few years ago, if someone said that a president would do that, you know, anybody who knew anything about inspectors general would just be flabbergasted. You know, um, we should want strong watchdogs in our government. And that's another place where Congress has just fallen down. Right. Uh, 
you know, where were they? Because that's the one place that Congress gets to make sure that their money is spent correctly. And, and the inspectors general, I'm sure, are pesky to presidents because they call out all sorts of things. Right. But, you know, we need we need people like this. We need we all police forces have them every you know, we, you need your ombudsman to make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, it's like a it's a, it's a check Mm-hmm. within the system. I mean, yeah, the inspectors general check the executive branch from within. Congress is supposed to check the executive from the outside. Right. Um, and, and we seem in our country lately to have just given up the idea of, of checks. We don't need anyone to check anyone. <laughs> so unless yeah, it's through scary. the, unless it's through the, um, the, the political process, the electorate. So I don't know. It's, um, it's not healthy as far as I'm concerned. No, we're in, we're in a strange time. Uh, you know, somebody, this is now my 30th year of teaching as a political science professor. Wow. And I'll, in some ways, I'm not enjoying it. Um, uh, it, it and that's, that sounds a little harsh, and I don't want to overstate it. I do like my job and my career. But it, it's, it's so hard to be able to explain to young people. Uh, you, you know, I actually see them almost developing a lack of patriotism uh, because they see a system that seems so completely corrupt. Um, if they want to get involved in it, it seems to me they want to hold their line. You know, they have fallen mm-hmm. into the pattern of not wanting to, to see new, nuance. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, politics is all nuance, but mm-hmm. we, I think we've lost that. Yeah. We've chosen passion over nuance. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I I keep thinking on a number of these counts, I keep thinking, well, if you were to apply this way of acting to your real regular life, how helpful will it be? <laughs> like if you went through with your friends and family and you just chose right. to just choose passion and, and, and sound bites, um, man, you'd have some bad relationships. Oh, yeah. Yeah, how, <laughs> yeah no kidding. Yeah, you, how, how would that work for a marriage, you know? Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's funny. I, I said the word quaint a, a little while ago, and I, yes. you know, if everything, you know, a few years back seems quaint now, but I have to note that I was actually with you the night of that Bush-Gore election. Oh, is that right? We were having a watch party on campus to watch the results come in. And of course, it was inconclusive. And, um, you know, everybody was like, oh, we've never had this happen before. You know, oh, what, what kind of new world are we in? And right. I remember one of my classmates saying that she refused to leave the room until they had announced the results. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like well, it was a good thing that she gave up because she would have been there for weeks. <laughs> you know, I now remember that it was in uh, the Purcell building on campus, right? I I yeah. don't remember what it was. I think called. it was. I think I now remember it. Yes, I remember. I remember what the room looked like in the moment. I remember the TV screen, and I remember everybody just having their jaw dropped. Like, <laughs> oh come on! <laughs> yeah, we have to keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually, I feel like that election night is something that we really need to keep in mind for this coming election because of how many votes are going to come in via um, absentee ballot that we could very well be in the same situation again this year. And we need to prepare ourselves. (laughs) Oh, right. Nobody, nobody should be saying I'm not leaving the room until they've announced a winner. (laughs) No, no, you should look up uh, a uh, an op ed. Well, oh, I wrote it now that I think about it. It was in the Baltimore <laughs> Sun about a year ago on uh, on why we should actually abandon the notion of election night. And this was oh. before the coronavirus. Wow. Okay. That, you know, that, you know, we need to, we've, we've made several mistakes of being inaccurate. I, I don't like the whole thing of people talking to sleepy audiences at one in the morning when- right. You know, let I, I why you know I, I actually said in this the candidate should say let let's let's talk tomorrow. You know, we'll, yeah, but. yeah, trying to pretend you have answers that you don't. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, the, and yeah. of course the media wants to do that for, right. for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, it makes for good television. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, I think we'll end our conversation, and I will link to that article that you the op-ed oh, okay. that you mentioned in the show notes. So. Okay. Well, it is always brilliant talking to you. I don't know if you're, you're do your do your listeners know how brilliant you are? I hope they do. <laughs> well, thank you for the compliment. I appreciate it. I had a, I had some good teachers. <laughs> good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. I really appreciate your time.
Thanks for thanks for uh, thanks for uh, inviting me. It's good talking to you. You too. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Michael Toll. You can find a link to the op-ed mentioned by Dr. Toll in the episode description. Next week's episode will feature a conversation with my friend Abigail Benjamin. Abigail is a wife, mother, writer, professor, and attorney who ran for elected office for the first time this year. She and I will be talking about Abigail's first venture into electoral politics, and we'll be reflecting on the life and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as well as what her death means for our political and civic future. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it, and that if you like it, leave a rating or review so others can find it. I'd appreciate any shares, too. Your help is the best way to let others know about the podcast. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. If you have ideas for topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, please email me at julie.walsh.thesewalls at gmail.com. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.